Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. Tonight, then, we're going to pick up in Genesis 46. Um, I'm going to go backwards just a little bit because Mom, uh, last time we did 45, she's like, I just didn't quite get the connection between this and this and this, so I wanted to go back and redo that connection between those things. Um, if you can go back to 45, verse 15, uh, Joseph is alive. The brothers find out about him. He kisses his brothers. They weep over him. And then his brothers talked with them. They break bread. They have a meal. They talk. Um, and then Joseph gives him the command to go out and bring home Israel. So he tells his 11 brothers, it's your job to go bring home uh, Israel or Jacob. Um, basically, he tells them, I want the whole family to move here. We're going to be in the world in Egypt, but we're not going to be of Egypt. We're going to be kind of foreigners in a strange land. And Joseph's going to protect them. So in verse 27, it says, but when they told him all the words, when they told Israel or Jacob all these words, which Joseph had said to him, and when he saw the carts with Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. What made Israel come alive, what made Jacob come alive, was that they talked about the words of Joseph and the works of Joseph. And one of the things I had said is, one of the things in our life is, do we have stories that we can tell about God and have we seen God do things or reap things in our life? Remember I talked about sowing and reaping and that was kind of the connection is the thing that brings people into the kingdom is the sowing and the reaping. And when they see that you um, not only know the words of God, but you're seeing God do things in your life, that that can be a really compelling thing for people. Uh, so the Bible gives a few options on those things, the kinds of things we can sow in our life. We can sow sin we can sow emptiness or we can wait on the Lord and we can have some struggles and then we get crops in due season. We can sow God. Um, and so what God has said and so what he's doing in our life and that that's where we spend as much mental energy as we can as we study the word of God, we study what God's doing in our life, which is why it's kind of important every week when I'm like, what's God doing in your life and what kind of God stories do you have? That it's nice that we don't all have God stories every week, but some weeks, some of us do, and that's the sort of things we can sow in our life as we can talk about what God's doing. And if you look at Joseph as a model, he puts God in front, and he's constantly talking about what God's doing in his life. Um, so Jacob was waiting to see if his sons were lying, if they were bad news, but now he's got amazing news. This is good. It's unbelievable news that Joseph's alive. Um, and Joseph's been up to a few things back in Egypt. So uh, Israel now has an issue. He's willing to go follow his sons to see Joseph, but he's supposed to stay in Canaan. Remember that? Abraham was supposed to stay in Canaan. Isaac was supposed to stay in Canaan. Jacob was supposed to stay in Canaan. So now we got an issue because it seems like there's this opportunity to, to go to Egypt or go live in the world. Um, and he starts to head down there. But I think you'll notice that Isaac this time stops there 
it just so happens that on the way to Egypt, there's one of the family's kind of significant sites right on the way down there. There's a site, um, almost like God's been planning this moment all along. But there's been other people that have made their way down to Egypt and haven't quite gotten there. So uh, up north, there's a site called Mamre, or where Bethel is. Remember the, where the terebinth trees are? But down in the south, there's a place called Beersheba, or the Well of the Oath. Um, so we'll start in verse 1 on chapter 46, and we'll go, go on with this chapter. So, and that's all of that was to set up that first word, so. So because of that, Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. So Israel, now we have Israel being used as a name again. Uh, he is doing what God's told him to do. He's revived. His spirit's there. He's ready to journey but I think it's cool that he stops here to wait upon the Lord. Um, and, and this is a good example of him hurrying up and to start waiting. So he, he gets in a rush to stop. Um, and it's another model of a central biblical peace precept. It's that here we have Beersheba, the well of the oath, and we have Isaac stopping to ask God's advice about what to do and give that sacrifice. Um, again, at this particular site in Genesis 22, Abraham stops here plants a grove of trees. It's a good place to camp, right? There's water. And Abraham actually dwelt here for a season. In Genesis 26, Isaac settled here after he dug many wells. Remember, he moved away from the Philistines a bunch of times, but this is the place he kind of settled. And Isaac built an altar at this particular spot. Remember, they built the altar and then the workers came afterwards and said, hey, we found water. So I like to think that Jacob years later, decades later, is actually giving a sacrifice on the altar that his dad built at this particular site, which I think is kind of a cool connection. And he's probably camping under the trees that uh, Abraham planted here. So the Israelites have already started to change the land and, and made this kind of significant spot. So it's Israel's turn now, um, and he's going to wait on God's will. I think that it's kind of cool that as emotional as he is about seeing Joseph, he stops and he waits upon God. So he, the a mature believer does this all the time. God comes before emotions or God's will in our life is more powerful than our emotions. And I think this is a smart move. So in verse two, then God spoke to Israel. It's been decades in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. It's been a long time since they've talked. Um, it's, it's been a while since God talked at this spot. Remember he talked to Hagar in Genesis 21 at this spot. Um, and turns her back and says, don't go down to Egypt. Um, and at this, and, and the other time he'd talked uh, was in Genesis 28. Jacob was told not to leave the promised land 40 years ago. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will surely bring you up again, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. So in the first 2,000 years of human history, there's only a, a handful of people that hear the audible voice of God. Uh, Jacob happens to be one of them, and utterly it's God who's going to bring Jacob to Egypt. Not Joseph, not the enthusiasm to see Joseph, and not even Jacob. Ultimately, it's because he stops here and God guides him and directs him that it's God that sends him into Egypt. Um, waiting then is the process of letting, waiting for, waiting is the process of God making you ready for something. So Jacob waiting upon the Lord here is exactly what God wants to see from Jacob before he talks to him. Um, 
Before Jacob was waiting for bad news, now Israel's waiting to hear good news, but the waiting is the contentment, and it can be a lot of gain. It's interesting that God knows the fears of Jacob without a record of him saying them. So um, note that it says, do not fear to go down to Egypt, even though Jacob hadn't said that he was afraid. God still knows his heart. The phrase, put his hand on your eyes, is generally something, if you think about when someone dies, one of the last things we do is we close their eyes. So the idea that Jacob's, or Joseph's going to be there, Jacob, when you die, he'll be the one laying his hand on your eyes. Um, so does he have permission to go? Yep, he has permission to go. Verse 5. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones and their wives, in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. Jacob, remember, was maimed or his hip was busted in the wrestling match. So he's probably been laid up for some time, which explains why he sent the young Joseph to go check on his brothers, is that um, we haven't seen Jacob up and moving around since that wrestling match. So here we see that he was carried and they used the carts to move him. So he's an old guy that can't move around on his own. Um, so that pretty much sets up the story that we're going to get into next. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, and his sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all of his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Canaan and Egypt both were idolaters. They both studied, uh, worshipped multiple gods. Um, the Canaanites had no issue whatsoever intermarrying and intermingling with the Israelites. In fact, they would introduce their gods and share their gods. And here, you should worship this god. Come on down to our god worship. And there was a lot of that going on because we saw a lot, some of that idol worship coming in. The exception here um, with the Egyptians is that they don't intermingle with foreigners. Their gods are private and they don't share them. So we have a very different culture that they're going down into now. Um, and the fact that Joseph had any dealings with the Egyptians at all was an extreme exception. And the only reason Joseph has any dealings with the Pharaoh is because he did the dreams. But in the meantime, it was the Pharaoh was desperate to find anyone who could interpret dreams, and Joseph was that person. So God's doing some things to build a nation here, and he's had his hand in everything Joseph's got. Um, what Egypt then becomes for Israel is it's going to be an incubator because it won't touch them, it'll let them grow, and it's going to protect them. So most of the time on earth, it's kind of interesting to think Israel. Israel at this point is a family, but when we see them leave it, Egypt, they're going to be a nation. So this is going to be a nation incubator in Egypt for, for the nation of Israel. It's interesting with Israel that they don't really have a homeland. There's land that God owns that he's promised to them, but the first 400 years of Israel as a nation, they don't really have a homeland. They're strangers in a strange land. They are homeless and they don't have roots. Um, and I think that's what God's trying to build. He's trying to build a totally spiritual nation. Their inheritance is God. Um, and, and as they come back to Canaan in, in 400 years with, with uh, Moses and then Joshua, Ultimately speaking, they're going to be on that land, but it's only for a season, and then the Babylonians will haul them away. And then they come back, and it's only for a season, and then the Romans scatter them all over the place. And now they're back in the land, and they've been back since uh, 1945, 8. Um, so they've been back in the land for a while. 
but essentially the history of Israel has been one where they they keep their identity even though they're homeless and they've done that for centuries of their history so this is a key pivot point um, in the story because they all move there um, at a key pivot point in the book of Genesis what could be better than a list of names and a genealogy because that is what we're doing here this is the last and final told off of the book of Genesis it's like we're coming to a close so you got to wrap it all up we've got this story all of these sons and sons sons and daughters sons of sons have come together and we need a record of who came um, and we need to know that because we need to know the potential lines of the Messiah the promise that God's made and the birth order and the marriages are super important so the I'm going to go through this genealogy and I could just read it through super fast like the first time we did it but I decided to not do that because this is the geeky time through the Bible what I'm going to do is read the sentence that you see in your Bibles but then I'm going to read it as though we were hearing it in Hebrew because I think it was at first a curiosity but I think you're going to notice that with each of the brothers there are some significant differences in between these families that a Hebrew native speaker would hear when they read these things. For instance, let's start with the first one. Uh, they start with Leah's children, which will become relevant because whoever wrote this down moved Rachel up in the hierarchy. Um, but we start with Ra Leah's children's first. Now these were the names of the children of Israel, Jacob's and his sons who went to Egypt. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. Again, they keep writing that, but God keeps ignoring it. <laughs> like whoever the firstborn is doesn't seem to be relevant in these families, but they just keep making a point of it. Verse 9, the sons of Reuben were Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. That's what we hear, right? Hebrew names. But each of those names in the Hebrew has a meaning and, a, and behind it. So it's kind of like when we name somebody uh, Matt. Like there's such a thing as a doormat and a placemat, and we know what a mat is in our society, right? So the word mat can be a name, but it can also be a thing. And in the Hebrew, every one of these names has a meaning behind it. Um, so Reuben, for instance, in the Hebrew, Reuben means behold a son. So if I were going to read this sentence as though it were in the Hebrew, it would read, the sons of behold a son are dedicated, distinguished, protect, protected by a wall, and my vineyard which are pretty cool names for Reuben. It's like in his older age and as he's become a dad, uh, th the way he named his kids was pretty honorable, right? So that's Reuben's family. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Johar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. Um, in the Hebrew, Simeon means God has heard. So the sons of God has heard are day of God, right hand, united, he will establish tawny, desired, even though they're Canaanite, um, <laughs> which the name Shaul, I thought that was kind of cool because Shaul is desired. And then the thing that's always going to be attached to Shaul is that he was the son of a Canaanite woman, which means he intermarried. So he's not the line of the Messiah, but he's still desired. He's still wanted. So I think it's cool that God has heard or Simeon um, is again, seems to be naming his kids after things that have to do with the faith. And, and honorable names. Um, that's not the case with Levi. Um, and his kids are, this is interesting. The sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. 
And I thought I was going to get just 12 kids with all these names that were super cool. Super cool name, super cool name, and all that. But listen to this. Joined to the crown, or, or joined to or crown as Levi in Hebrew. His, the sons of the crown were exile, assembly, and bitter. And if you were Hebrew and you were just reading these things in Hebrew, that's what you'd read. And you'd go, okay, something's wrong with Levi because he's naming his kids pretty kind of sad names or pretty weird names. But they seem to name their kids however they're feeling when the kid is born. Um, so it's just kind of interesting. I hope you're as interested, but to me that's kind of interesting. It saves the time of looking them all up. The sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. Now listen to this in the Hebrew. Judah means praised. So the sons of praised were awake, strong, petition, breach, rising. But awake and strong died in the lowland. Breach gave birth to protected by a wall and spared. So I think that's, it's just kind of, it's almost like it tells a story, right? Um, The maybe being awake and strong are things that weren't, things that praise has much to do with. Praise is more about giving a petition. It's more about opening yourself up to God. It's more about a rising spirit, but it's not about being strong, right? So awake and strong die in the lowland, but breach, that broken spirit, gets protected by a wall and spared. And I thought that's super interesting, like a mini study of the word praised you can see in the names of Judah's kids. Some of the sons of Judah were already grandparents at this time. So in this case, we see the line of Messiah as a generation ahead of some of the others. Um, And we do see the line of Messiah here is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. And now we see Perez and Perez has kids, Hezron. In Joshua 7, the Canaanite Zerah and one of the the first people are, I'm sorry, the Canaanite, um, where is Zerah? Oh, and Zerah, that last kid. In Joshua 7, the last kid, Zerah, gets to be one of the first people that will seek idolatry. And that's, remember when Achan grabs the stuff out of the Canaanite camps? Um, that's coming out of the descendant of Zerah, that last kid here, the one that's spared. Then we get to Issachar. And the sons of Issachar were Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. Okay, a couple notes. First of all, this Job is likely the Job of the Bible. And you'd say, how can that be? Because the book of Job was supposed to be the first recorded book of the Bible. And in part, Genesis right now doesn't get assembled as a book until Moses' era. And as Moses is assembling all these toldos together, he may have found the records of Job, this guy who gets persecuted and has to deal with all this stuff. And it could be that was the first kind of complete work. So the writing style could have been, well, 400 years older than the writing style that Moses did when he put all the Genesis records together. So that said, um, recompense is the word for Issachar. The sons of recompense were, here we go, worm, an Arabian word possibly, not Hebrew at all. It could mean mouth. And Job means persecuted. And Shimron is, in the Hebrew root of the word, it's the scuzzy dregs at the bottom of wine before you put it in the bottle. So worm, who knows, persecuted, and dregs are the four names of Issachar's kids. Issachar's not in a good place. And with Puva, it seems that he's definitely had 
kind of connections before they moved to Egypt. They had some connections with other groups and, and whatnot. The fact that Job means persecuted is interesting, especially when we look at the book of Job. The sons of Zebulun were Sarad, Elon, Jahleel. Uh, Zebulon means exalted. So the sons of exalted are fear, mighty oak, waiting on God. Um, and in the Hebrew Chaldean lexicon, it means waiting on God because you got sick, right? So it's you're sick, and so you wait upon God when you're ailing. Um, and I think that's, again, an, a, another good list of names. Uh, these were the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padamaram with his daughter Dinah. All the persons, his sons and daughters, were 33. We'll count up all the numbers later, but for now, just chalk off that we have 33 people here. Worth going through the names? Anybody who names their kid Worm, something's wrong with their heart. You don't name your kid Worm. Bubba, Booger. All right. Now Zilpah's sons. Uh, remember Zilpah was the handmaiden that Leah used to expand her childhood base. So she used her as a surrogate mom, kind of. The sons of Gad were Ziphon, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Erelai. So there might have been with Gad's kids different mothers because these are grouped in the Hebrew and, it, and there aren't commas there. It actually goes Ziphion and Haggai, Shuni and Esbon, Eri and Arodi, and Areli. So there's actually kind of four ands in that sentence in the Hebrew or connection points, uh, which could imply that Gad was uh, had multiple wives. Um, and or... He had a bunch of twins. That would be another way, because you know we often say Benny and Johnny, and they kind of go together, and that would be something that would be going on here too. Here's how this reads if we translate it. Uh, Gad means troop, so the sons of troop were lookout and festive, fortunate and I'll be bigger, <laughs> watchful and wild ass, and, and I like this one, lion of God. So it's kind of cool that you've got these names where it seems to be not kind of straight away from God quite a bit, but you see on his last kid that there's this shift in his heart. And I wonder if one by one, these brothers were coming back to the Lord as they'd gone through their struggles and their suffering and whatnot. Again, you don't name your kid wild ass unless they're rowdy. Um, and uh, we'll get on to the next one. The sons of Asher uh, were Jimna, Ishua, Iswi, Beriah, and Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Moriah were Heber and Malkielel, Malkielel, Malkiel, or something. Sons of Happy, because Asher's name is Happy, like one of the dwarves of Snow White. Uh, the sons of Happy were Prosperity, He Will Level, He Resembles Me, Gift, Abundance, and the sons of Gift were Fellowship and My King is God. So kind of a cool list of names in that family too. These were the sons of Zilpah, who Laban gave to his daughter, to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. Now, if you flip forward two chapters, you can just glance. You'll see that Jacob's uh, blessings come to each of these sons and their families. You'll also notice that the blessings go right along with the meaning of their name. Um, so when you see uh, happy, for instance, happy is going, he will be blessed with happiness. And he'll be blessed with prosperity and joy and, and whatnot. And if you look carefully at Issachar's blessing, 
he's not blessed. So some of these ways in which they name their kids are almost foreshadowing to the blessings that each family is going to get at the end of the book. And it might be worth flipping back and forth as I go through these. So there were 16 people that were sons of Zilpah, verse 18. There were, these were the sons of Zilpah who Laban gave to his daughter Leah. These she poured to Jacob, 16 persons. So in the next section, verse 19, the sons of Rachel, we leave the birth order. Rachel's actually the third in this list, and Bilhah, her servant, is fourth. So they go true wife, servant, second wife, servant, and that's the order that the person did it in. It could be that Joseph was organizing these and he ranked himself up higher than the servants. Um, or it could be that Jacob had kind of redone the, the ranking order or something to that effect. Either way, the sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, and this is the only one where it names Rachel at the beginning. The other ones name the mom kind of at the end. Um, and it's the only one that says Jacob's wife, which I think is kind of probably Joseph saying my mom was the bestest. Um, but the sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, were Joseph and Benjamin. Um, so given the distinct wording from the other three, we'll just keep going. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Aseneth, the daughter of Potperi, the priest of On, bore to him. So this is an Egyptian mom here. Um, and, Jeho and to read that, I think we already knew this, Joseph's name means Jehovah will finish, and he gave birth to cause to forget and double fruit. And I think we already had covered that in the previous chapter. The sons of Benjamin were Bala, Beaker, Ashbel, Jera, Naaman, Ihi, Rosh, Muppam and Huppam, and Hard. <laughs> Benjamin sounds like he needed a big brother. Um, to help from going off the rails. Because listen to these names. Benjamin, the son of my right hand, gave birth to destruction, young camel, fire in Baal, which is a Canaanite god, grain, and grain was often used in sacrifices in uh, pagan worship, pleasantness, brother, head, serpent, protected, covered, and I will subdue. Um, so the names of these kids are not exactly, they're more in Issachar's school. I think Benjamin was going off the rails. He needed his big brother. This timing for Benjamin uh, was important because Joseph's influence was there. Like a lot of youngest kids, sometimes they go off the rails, I think. And Benjamin was no different. <laughs> these were the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 people in all. Manasseh and Ephraim, uh, bring the Egyptian heritage into Israel with them. They're grafted in into the kingdom. And to this day, there is Egyptian heritage in most Jewish people. There's evidence of some Egyptian uh, or African intermarrying at some point through history. And it dates back so many generations, and it dates back to this generation when you look at some of those things. As per Jeff Sowald kind of said that. So the son of Dan was Husham. And that's kind of sad because Dan's name, uh, the son, is actually plural in the Hebrew. So it says the sons of Dan was Husham, a singular. So it's kind of almost like they made a spot in the records and then he didn't have any more kids, but they still had the mm. plural sons there. So the sons of Dan was Husham, 
and translated that means the sons of Judge were hasty. The sons of Naphtali were Jazeel, Guni, Jezer, and Shillam. I like the name Jezer. I think that's kind of, anyways. Uh, Naphtali means wrestling. Uh, so the sons of wrestling were God divides, defender, formation, and retribution. Kind of confrontational names. These were the sons of Bilhah, which means troubled. The son whom Laban gave to his Rachel, his daughter, and she bore these to Jacob, seven persons in all. So all the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body besides Jacob's son's wives, were 66 people in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons. So all the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70, counting Jacob, Joseph, uh, Ephraim, and Manasseh. God then will take these 70 people and he will multiply them with God's blessing. And that multiplication happens quick. Uh, Benjamin, by the way, with that many kids, it's if you figure out like the numbers on how old he is, by the time he has that many kids, um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 kids, he's only 22 years old. So we're going to guess that Muppam and Huppam were twins. Um, and that some of these pairings or twins actually kind of ran in these families. And that's one way that God can help multiply things quicker than normal. And it seems Benjamin would have gotten married fairly young to make that many kids that quick. And then he's having them, or he may have had multiple wives um, because that has already been in this family. And we see that can happen and that can speed up the number of kids you have too. Um, that said, if you take the birth rate, so it's been 25 years from Isaac, it's about 60 years for Jacob, and in that 50 sons, uh, in the 50 years from Isaac to Jacob, you had 12 sons with Endina from, from Jacob. So that's 125 years that it took to get from one Isaac to 12 sons plus Dinah. Make sense? Now in the next 430 years, at that birth rate, um, we can expect that um, later in Genesis, it'll say there were 600,000 men, which with women and children would come to about 1.2 million people, right? So it's interesting how quickly this will happen over 400 years and, it, and, and where we go from just one Isaac to 1.2 million people. Um, it doesn't take long because they're getting married at 15, 16 years old and they're making a lot of babies and they're making them quick. Um, so they make a curious point here. Why take all this time to count? So that's a good question, I thought. Why does it matter how many people made the trip to Egypt? Why, do the, why does 66 become problematic? And then they have to point out it was 66, but with Joseph and his two kids and Jacob, that's actually 70 people to found the nation of Israel. So that's kind of curious, and it doesn't seem to be entirely accurate. If you go to Acts 7, verse 14, go ahead and flip there. This is one of those spots where people say the Bible has made a mistake, and you have to hop through a thousand years of history to find the mistake. Stephen's before the Sanhedrin giving his defense, right? It won't go well because they're going to 
stone him. And in chapter 7 of Acts, verse 14, Stephen says, Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him. That's the story we're in right now. And all his kindred, three score and 15 souls. And if you add up three score and 15, that is 75. So wait, did Stephen just get it wrong? Did he not count right? Is the Bible mistaken? Is there a problem here? And this is what I find. I think there's three types of mistakes in the Bible. And I've been reading a lot of them because I'm just kind of into this right now. One of the kinds of mistakes that people find in the Bible are counting errors. That the numbering is wrong or there's a mathematical error or something gets added up wrong. Um, Most of the time, I don't care. So it goes into the category of this does not change the core message of the Bible. In this case, 70 seems to be a very important number to the writer of our passage. They went out of their way to add up the parts of each family so we could easily count to 70. Um, And Stephen just says 75. So did Stephen make a mistake? Um, So what's interesting here is um, in the Septuagint, which we don't really use that translation in the Greek version of the Old Testament, um, if you look at this list, they don't count the sons of Ephraim and Manasseh. And there's five sons, or Joseph had five grandsons at this point that they don't count as the founding group of the nation of Israel. So it's interesting that they don't do that. Actually, they only count the sons. So there would have been more than 70 if you counted the daughters too. So it's kind of odd that they seem to only be counting like heads of household here to get this 70 number, right? They're doing some, they're doing some things where they don't count these folks and they do count those folks. So again, we come back to the question, why 70? Why is that a big deal? What's the author trying to say when they give us 70? And the only thing you can kind of come to, um, well, let me just walk you through it. Jump to Deuteronomy 32. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Numbers, Deuteronomy, book five. So this is them coming into the land, right? With 70 heads of household. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 7 is where I'm going to start. They're coming back into Canaan. They're leaving Egypt with Joshua. They're coming back, coming back into the land. And here's what it says. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders that they will tell you. So that's our first clue is with the 70, we're counting elders, right? When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of all the people of the earth according to the number of the children of Israel. You catch that? So the nations of the earth actually match the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people, And Jacob is the place of his inheritance, and he found him in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye, and then as an eagle stirs up his nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on his wings, so the Lord alone led them. There was no foreign God with them. So when God sets up the nations of the earth, And this is in Genesis 10, if you want to go back and redo that. We went through these back when we did that. 
there's Shem had 26, Ham had 30, and Japheth had 14. That's 70 nations to cover the earth. So God gives to the humanity, they can have the earth, they can have 70 countries, right? These were the families of Noah according to their generations and their nations, and from these nations were, the, were divided on earth after the flood. Originally, there were 70 nations on the planet, but now God's singling out a family and he's going to build that family into a nation that doesn't have territory. This nation's going to give birth in his, Egypt, and it's going to grow in Egypt, and it's going to grow where the earth has 70 nations. God just wants 70 people. So he takes one head of household for every nation of the earth. That's God's portion. And God's going to build something to bless the whole earth with these 70 children of Israel. So there's the world, and there's going to be God's nation. And anyone who wants to join God's nation, we'll see in Leviticus, there are rules in the law where you can join Israel, and you can be part of God's nation. And I wonder to some degree if the, the church isn't acting the same way today. God took just a small group of people, and he's going to flood the entire earth with the message of Jesus Christ in the same way he was meant to, that he meant to do and is still happening with Israel. So now God establishes his own nation. It doesn't have a home. There are 70 children of Israel. They match the 70 nations. Um, and we move on with the story of Joseph and Jacob reunite. That's the best explanation I could see for why the 70 was so important. Um, and that's the, the explanation that Deuteronomy gives. So the Bible explains itself. You don't have to go to too many other places to find that. But God is going to stir up his nest and hover over his young, and his young are going to be these dedicated children of Israel that are going to grow up there. And they are, according to the number of the children of Israel, he set the boundary of the peoples on the earth. So Jacob and Joseph reunite in verse 28. I thought that was really cool, by the way. Anyways, but it took a while to get there. Verse 28, Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen, it's fitting that Judah leads Israel at this point, and Judah prays is going to lead them into the land of abundance, which is uh, what Goshen means. So Joseph made ready his chariot, and he went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel, and he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. So basically he couldn't contain himself, and he had a good old-fashioned cry hugging his dad, and it's been a long time. <clears throat> the word presented there is the same as when you were presenting to, to the divine a vision of something. So when he presented himself to him, um, Joseph was acting as though, or, or presented himself as though he were presenting himself to God himself. So he's honoring Jacob with how he did it. He made an elaborate show or presentation um, to honor Jacob. And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I've seen your face because you're still alive. In other words, I've got everything I need in life now. I've seen your face. I'm good to die. He won't die. He's got 17 more years. So he's just playing old man syndrome right there. Um, but we see a change in, change in Israel from Genesis 42:36, where he said, all these things are against me. In Genesis 45:28, he says, it's enough. I'm good to die. We've seen a massive transition here where Israel who has struggled with God his whole life is now satisfied. And we've never seen Jacob satisfied until this point where he's just happy. 
he's been given and he's content with what he has. And um, what else does he need? He's got everything he needs, which is, I think, where we should be at. I was reminded of John 6, 68, where Simon Peter answers the Lord. And the Lord says, are you going to leave me too? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou has the words of eternal life. Like, why, why? It doesn't matter how many people are following you. Where else are we going to go? You've got everything. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock. And they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. <clears throat> so it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation that you shall say, your servants' occupation has been with livestock from your youth even till now, both we and our families and our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians." Joseph knows exactly what he's doing. He knows two things. One, the Egyptians will leave them alone if they announce that they're shepherds because shepherds have to deal with livestock, which is unclean behavior for Egyptians. They would hire other people to deal with their livestock. Goshen is separate, but it's not really close to the Nile. It's off the Nile. So for farmers, it's too far away because you can't really do irrigation. So it's far enough away from the Nile, but it's perfect for grading sheep. So it's a nice land, it's abundant, um, but it's not where the farmers of Egypt would have wanted to be. So it's this wide open territory. Um, Joseph understands his brothers. <laughs> I think it's cool, a couple things are cool here. He knows that his brothers have a tendency to exaggerate, that they try to court other cultures sometimes, at least they did in Canaan. So him coaching them a little bit to say, look, this is how it's going to go here in Egypt. If you're here in Egypt, you're not going to ruin my thing by bragging or saying you're something you're not. You're going to go to the Pharaoh. You're going to tell the Pharaoh the truth. You're not princely sons of a rich Canaanite merchant. You are sheep herders. And when Joseph tells him to tell the truth, he's actually not ashamed of his family. He's not ashamed of his roots. You'd think second in command, Joseph would want to forget about his past and puff himself up but by being truthful and saying that they're chosen by God then they're putting God first and they're sharing with Pharaoh exactly who they are and I just thought of that and I thought how many times have I tried to impress people by exaggerating who I am puffing up a story or saying I'm something that I'm not and how much better it is in life when you're just truthful with people and you say who you are and what you are and you don't pretend to be more so Joseph, knowing that his brothers have a history with lying, coaches them. And he basically says, you don't lie to Pharaoh. That will get you in trouble. Just tell the truth. I've got it all taken care of. So if they can tell the truth, they're protected. We're now at that break point at 42 minutes. We want to try to do 47. What spot? All right, Genesis 47. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, my father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan and indeed they're in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Interestingly, if you go back to the genealogy, there were five brothers that had names that honored God and the other brothers had other kinds of namings. So I thought it was kind of interesting that he probably picked likely... He picked Reuben, Judah, Zebulun, and Dan 
And he probably picked Benjamin because he was Rachel's other son, his true brother. So that would be my thought is that he picked those people to come with him. But that's not based on anything. It's just based on the blessings in Genesis 49. Those are There's five of them that get kind of really good blessings from Jacob. And there were five of them that clearly had some uh, names that honored uh, Jehovah in, in the history. So he picks five of his brothers to go. Another That might be another great sign of Joseph's wisdom is that he's not going to overwhelm Pharaoh by bringing 70 people into the palace courtyard, especially shepherds, right? Some of them probably had bad habits. Some probably weren't, you know, that tidy. Um, I think it's also cool here that Joseph's going to submit to Pharaoh. He's not so big for his britches that he's has an issue with someone ruling over him. He's totally cool with Pharaoh being the boss. And he's going to honor Pharaoh by doing this and coming to Pharaoh and saying, hey, I just want to let you know my family's here. Hebrews 12, 17 says, Obey them that rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch over your souls, and they must give an account that they may do it with joy and not grief, for that is unprofitable for you. It's not good for Joseph if his boss doesn't like him. So he wants to make it so his boss is proud to have Joseph working for him. And Joseph just gets this idea. He's not striving to be in charge. He's diplomatic, he's respectful, and he's submissive to the authority over him, even when it's not a godly authority. So, um, why does he pick five? I think it's just to have a less overwhelming audience for the Pharaoh. Um, and it's important to note that not all of the brothers are really on track with godliness at this point. And we can tell that from their na- the names of their kids and from the blessings that Jacob's going to give. Um, and this is something where just being part of Israel does not mean that they're elected or selected by Joseph. That's an important concept that many of the Jewish people missed by the time of Jesus. They thought that just being Jewish meant that you were elected by God, but that's not the case. And in this metaphor, if Joseph is a sign of or a, a mirror of Jesus, Jesus does not pick everyone just because they're brothers. He picks certain people. He elects certain individuals. Um, Anyways, that's a side point. Verse three, then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what's your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, here's the moment of truth. Are they going to lie? Are they going to tell the truth? And they tell the truth. Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. What occupies your time? If you're not planting things, you're scattering things. Um, And that's what Pharaoh wants to know. What do you do if you're going to bring this big group of people into your country it's important to know what they do. So if you're coming back from China or you're going to another country with a visa, what they ask you is, what are you doing in my country? And they ask you that at the airport. Why are you here? What are you doing? Do you have a skill? Do you do you bring any value to my country? Um, are you spending money in my country or are you just here as a freeloader? So Pharaoh's basically saying, what's your occupation? What do you people do? And when they say shepherd, um, they're basically saying what they're doing that they're going to serve. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. So they're honest. They talk directly. There's no guile. There's simple respect here. Dwell, by the way, when they say, let us, your servants dwell in Goshen. They're humbling themselves because dwell means to travel through, to sojourn, to be a guest. Pharaoh, however, doesn't use the same word for dwell. 
He uses the word yashab, and I'll read it first. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell, yashab, in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And you and if you know any competent men among them, make them the chief herdsmen over my livestock. Joseph wants more blessing like Joseph's brought him. Joseph's made him a very wealthy man. So if you got anything like that in your family, you put them in charge of my stuff and, and that would be good. Yeshab means to inhabit, settle, or to make a nest or a place to live. So they said, we just want to travel through here. And Pharaoh said, you can settle here, make your homes here, build a city for yourself. Um, and I think that's extremely generous of Pharaoh because he respects Joseph and because Joseph is cool with Pharaoh being the boss. He's not trying to usurp him. Verse seven, then Joseph brought in his father, Jacob, and set him before Pharaoh. Another clue that he's not walking anymore. He has to be lifted. He's completely immobile. Uh, so Jacob's this wrinkled up dude sitting on a pallet. Um, and he brings him in and then catch this. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? This is a great passage. Usually the lesser does not bless the greater. And in the world's eyes, the Pharaoh is the greatest. And Jacob's a withered up old man on a cart. In God's eyes, Jacob's one of the few people on earth that's heard God speak to him. Jacob is clearly the master Yoda in this situation, right? So it is appropriate. And notice that Pharaoh doesn't counteract it, which shows us a little bit of Pharaoh's wisdom. He doesn't say, who are you to bless me? I should bless you as God on earth. He doesn't do that at all. Pharaoh's like, if you're the dad of Joseph and Joseph has saved my country and he knows how to read dreams, this guy talks to a real God and I don't. And he's wise enough to know his place. And he's wise enough to respect that Jacob is, is a prophet. He's talked to God. Um, and he hears directly from God. Make friends with those kinds of people, which is what this Pharaoh does. I think that's kind of cool. I also like that his first question is, how old are you? Like, what kind of geezer are you? And Jacob's going to essentially say, I'm not as old as my parents. Like, I'm young compared to, you know, this family seems to be living longer than the rest of the people on earth. And that could be God's blessing. Um, it's one of those things people have problems with with the Bible is that these people lived as long as they did. But this is a kind of question which gives us a little bit of intertextual clue that maybe these this family's living longer than most people on earth were living. How old are you? <laughs> and Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage I love it. It's not his life. It's his journey through this life, his pilgrimage. Our 130 years. By anybody's standard, that's an old geezer. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they've not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. I like that he's not at home. His life is a pilgrimage, and he sees it that way now in his old age. Few and evil have been the days of my life, He's either being a cynic, which I don't think he is, or he's comparing his days to the eternity ahead. He's crippled. He can't move. That's truth. It's humble. Um, and you think about his life, and they've, his life has sucked. He's born with Esau as his brother, which is just constant conflict and struggle in the home. 
eventually he has to run for fear that Esau is going to kill him. Then he lives under greedy Laban for a number of years, right? That was contentious. Then he had a bunch of sons that he couldn't trust that would kill each other, right? Or almost kill each other. And they choose their own will over the inheritance of God. And they're off running off speaking Arabian with these people and marrying Canaanites. And Judah was moving away from the family. They start splitting off. And it had to be a miserable life for Jacob because he couldn't do anything about it. So we think of this idea of numbering our days. That The Bible says to teach me to number my days. Every day matters. Every day without God is without life. Um, and Jacob hasn't spent a lot of days with God. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. He doesn't count in years. He counts in days. Um, Jacob blesses Pharaoh two times. That's amazing. Um, and it seems totally natural that he does. Um, and Joseph, verse 11, situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And then Joseph provided his father and brothers and all his father's household with bread according to the number of families. Remember, bread was precious. Uh, the families, the number in their families, that word actually means children in the Hebrew. So Joseph uh, is fully in charge. He's the sole provider. He's fulfilling prophecies. And when he's deciding who gets how much food, he does it based on the kids. So he's being just and he's fair. There's no question of his leadership and authority over this family at this point. And now that Jacob's here and he's bowing to this leadership of Joseph too, we have fulfillment, full fulfillment of both dreams. Notice the contrast between 11 and 12 in the next paragraph. Because the family, the Israelites, they're in the world but not of the world. They're living large. But outside of Goshen, things are getting tough. And in verse 13, we're going to see how Joseph rules when he's in charge. And we're going to see... <clears throat> the kind of connection he has with the people of Egypt. So there is no bread in the land for the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that he found in the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan for the grain which they had bought and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So there's still more. What we have left in Genesis is there's still five more years of famine, right? So things are going to struggle. But with these two paragraphs, we can see that the, the struggling isn't happening with the Israelites. They're going to eat healthy and breed. And they're going to start to expand their family base very quickly in the middle of this world. And most Egyptians aren't even going to Goshen because they don't want to hang out with sheep herders. So they're pretty much doing this under the radar. I think I'm going to stop here for tonight because between verse 12, which is kind of the conclusion of what's going on with the family, we're going to see through the rest of this chapter, uh, Joseph's leadership, of Israel through these years of famine and the amount of raw wealth he's going to accumulate for Pharaoh. Um, and my voice is starting to go. So let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, we thank you for this word. We thank you for Joseph. We thank you for the heart that he has for his family, the way in which he's provided for them in the same ways that you provide for us. Lord, you've reached out to bring your people back to you. Um, and through this age and through this period of history, we trust in you and you are our King. Uh, and you provide our daily bread. Um, and each day that we have that daily bread, Lord, we know that we're sustained by you. 
uh, that you watch over us, even though we're in the world, but not of the world. Um, Lord, help us to have humility as we deal with uh, those in authority above us, that we can come before them, Lord, and be honest and truthful and direct, not puff ourselves up and not be vain and try to pretend we know or can do things we can't, um, but to just be straightforward with people, Lord, and, and to be honest with them. Um, and we thank you, Lord, for the role model that Joseph provides and how he handles this kind of situation. And uh, we thank you that uh, that the life of Jacob is one that's been a struggle and few and evil are the days he spent with you, Lord. But we appreciate that sacrifice because it provides such an amazing narrative and model for us to live our lives, um, for you to tell your story of what you plan to do um, through the history of the earth, Lord. And we'll see that through how Joseph handles um, Egypt. And we get to see um, more and more how Joseph, like you, will eventually be the Lord of this earth and that you will reign on earth once more time, Lord. And we just uh, look forward to that day and we look forward to your return um, and for you to be in charge, Lord, for us to come into your fold and live in your land. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.